Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom Podcast. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of The Last Symptom. I want to include a second disclaimer in addition to the one that you usually hear at the top of the show every week. Today's topic is a very somber one. Suicide. Like I did with the topic of sex back in the second season dedicated to that topic, I'm going to be talking about death and suicide very honestly and frankly today. Now here's what happens with people who are in such an emotionally dangerous place that their personal potential for suicide is either serious or becoming serious. A person who is in this position will have his or her thoughts, primary interest, and focus drawn to topics of death and suicide with a sort of grim curiosity and fascination. This is called suicidal ideation and it's typically reflective of a dangerous emotional or mental state where a person is sort of working up to or researching with the possibility of eventually following through on some sort of action. It's a little like getting the idea of starting your own business. You know, in the very beginning, it's just sort of a passing fancy or passing idea, ain't it? But then a person says, well, I'll probably never be able to start my own business. But maybe I'll look into what's involved with such a thing anyway. And so the person starts doing some research and the idea of starting their own business suddenly doesn't seem so undoable after all. So now they're really sucked in and they're researching here and there and getting their hands on all sorts of uh, information that they can. And this is all leading up to them ultimately making a follow-through decision and actually taking real action. Well, suicidal ideation is a lot like this. A person may not fully realize or fully take seriously the direction their emotions or mental state is trying to lead them. A person may say, oh, I'd never actually follow through with anything. But I'd like you to keep in mind modesty. Modesty is that quality of recognizing that as a person you do have limits. It's respecting those limits. You have real mental, emotional, and physical limits. 
Modesty is being humble enough to accept that you, as a person, are just as susceptible to needing help as any other person, and then being humble enough to take responsibility for yourself to reach out for the right kind of help. If you feel like suicidal ideation is a state of mind that you might currently be experiencing, I strongly recommend you do not listen to this particular episode, and I mean this in all seriousness. Go get help for the suicidal ideation from the proper professional sources. Take care of that. Get stronger. And then, if you want to, you can come back and listen to this particular episode. Wait until you're more ready is not a bad thing. Of course, there's no way I can make this decision for you. I'm not responsible for your decisions, your thinking, your actions, or your feelings. But I'm asking you to be honest and modest and make the decision that will truly be best for you uh, and your long-term best interests. Why am I so insistent that uh, those with suicidal tendencies or urges go to professional sources of help? After all, don't I constantly point out right here on this show all the flaws and incompetency of the professional community? Yes, I do that, but I do it in the context of them providing accurate insights related to the root causes of emotional health, and I also uh, justifiably and accurately criticize certain ways that they communicate. But, as I've been talking a lot about lately, things must be done in the proper order. For example, I've said that if you're an out-of-control alcoholic... There's no sense in you coming to me to work on recovering from borderline personality disorder at this point in time. Because if if you're drunk all day and night, you can't give this work the type of clear thought and inner attention and mindfulness that it absolutely requires. So then doing things in the right order would mean go on and getting your drinking under control which means completely giving it up. All right, let's not beat around the bush here. It means completely giving it up. And the reality of this is that this very might possibly require a doctor prescribing medication to help you control uh, your withdrawal and your tremors and these sorts of things. The website alcohol.org says this, because alcohol withdrawal can potentially be life-threatening, anyone going through withdrawal should be monitored by a medical professional who can make it a more comfortable and safer process. The type of detox program or level of intensity needed will depend on the severity of alcohol dependence and other factors. So you see, The professional community, while not perfect, certainly does have the best tools and qualifications for helping you in these sorts of ways. When it comes to suicidal urges, it's not a lot different. As we'll talk about later, the underlying causes for suicidal urges 
might involve any one of many different things, or it might involve several different things at the same time. The professional community has broad experience in identifying if the underlying problem is physical, mental, emotional, or chemical, which we will talk about later. My work, The Last Symptom, is entirely focused on just one of these things, and that's emotional health. I'm not equipped or qualified to tell you with any certainty if the underlying issues of your suicidal ideation are not completely or even partially chemical in nature, for example. And even if I somehow could identify it as a chemical imbalance, what could I then do for you about it? I could do nothing. You can't reason your way out of a chemical imbalance that requires medication or other treatments. This is why it's so important not to play around with your life by being hesitant for any reason to reach out to the proper professional resources that are out there available to you specifically for when you're experiencing these sorts of conditions like suicidal ideation. The purpose of this particular episode of The Last Symptom is not intended for anybody's entertainment, nor is it to feed anybody's unhealthy curiosity. As always, you yourself are responsible for everything involving you. It is your responsibility to honestly evaluate your reasons for listening to this episode and to take action to reach out for help through the appropriate, available professional resources if you come to the conclusion that it's necessary. In fact, whether you're choosing to listen to this show at all is entirely your responsibility. I have no control over what you choose to listen to or over what is or is not going on inside of you, your feelings or any of these things. So again, I'm asking each listener to please be honest with yourself. Honestly evaluate your personal needs, your personal motivations, and where you personally are emotionally. If you don't think that the timing of this type of conversation is good for you, please don't listen. Don't be so immodest that you resist reaching out for help from the appropriate uh, groups, that uh, professional groups and organizations that is freely and openly available to you. Am I the person that you should be looking to for help if you are having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation? No, I absolutely am not. There are professional hotlines and free services galore that are in place specifically for such a situation. It is your responsibility to take care of yourself by taking advantage of such services. Since my audience is incredibly diverse and multinational, I ain't going to provide you a specific number for you because whichever one I could choose might not even work for you. And besides that, it's not even my responsibility to do your work for you. That's your responsibility. But you can access the appropriate services specific to your personal area 
with a simple search on any internet search engine of your preference. I personally like DuckDuckGo because of their top-rate privacy practices. I stopped using Google a year ago, and my life is much better for it. Although I may not know you personally, I do still care about you. However, my caring for real means not doing anything to enable or contribute to your continued unhealthy approaches to life, such as viewing others as responsible for you and your decisions, fake helplessness, failure to proactively act in your own best interests, and so forth. You doing the things that are necessary for your own well-being is not somebody else's responsibility. It is your responsibility. And I expect you to live up to that responsibility. Having said these things, I'll now briefly go through the normal weekly announcements that we always do. And that should give you plenty of time to decide whether or not you're going to continue listening to today's episode. Whatever you decide, you alone are responsible for that decision, and I accept no responsibility whatsoever for any thinking, feelings, decisions, or behaviors of yours. TheLastSymptom.com is my website full of free resources, and I hope that all people will take advantage of it. I was just explaining to somebody the other day that uh, my job with The Last Symptom is a real juggling act sometimes. This is because I'm a one-man show. So anytime I'm dedicating attention to one aspect of it, this is time being taken away from some other aspect of it. So maybe articles don't appear in the article library over at thelastsymptom.com as often as some would like. But that's only because I'm doing 19 million other things to keep my overall body of work well-rounded. The outline for this weekly show you're listening to right now sometimes takes several days to develop just by itself. This particular uh, outline took uh, four four days, almost 10-hour days. I wanted to... Yeah, it was, it's very nuanced, this conversation we're having today, and I wanted to get it right. There are regular video series, live chats, and live streams that I create weekly for those in the Last Symptom online community, in addition to this weekly podcast. There's my one-on-one dealings with people and future programs and other projects that I am slowly continuing to work on, all uh, related to The Last Symptom. A certain way to keep on top of everything is to visit thelastsymptom.com. You can go into the article library and subscribe to receive notices for any new article updates, as well as newsletters and that sort of thing. The paid services at thelastsymptom.com are these, one-on-one phone and Zoom conversations with me. If you're suicidal, don't schedule a call with me, because I won't talk to you in that state call one of the many professional organizations that exist precisely for that particular situation instead. The most important service I offer at thelastsymptom.com is the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, an intensive two-week pre-recorded video course. It's just like taking an online pre-recorded college course. 
It's designed for those interested in authentically recovering from any emotional disorder such as borderline personality disorder, as well as those who would like to comprehensively understand those with an emotional disorder, such as borderline personality disorder. Again, if you're suicidal, don't enroll in that course. Not unless and until you have the suicidal ideation under control. You'll be wasting your money. Same goes for those of you struggling with substance abuse. Go to a professional. Get the substance abuse under control first and in the right way. And then you can come back and take the last symptom fundamentals course if you are still interested. Always be logical and do things in the right logical order. That course requires a lot of clear thought. I would like you to come into it thinking clearly. Our thriving The Last Symptom online community is no longer on Facebook. It's instead on Locals. L-O-C-A-L-S. You can join us by typing thelastsymptom.locals.com into your web browser. You can join at absolutely no cost. You can enjoy the majority of content there at absolutely no cost. If at some point you'd like to help support what I do and at the same time open up some additional benefits for yourself within the group, it's easy to do. Now, for our serious discussion about suicide. As you can guess, there will be no campfire stories at the end of today's show and there won't be any joking around as we usually do. We'll reserve that stuff for next week's show. How do I personally feel about suicide? Well, I have a lot of complicated feelings about it. Anger is the emotion I most commonly experience when the topic of suicide comes up. I don't have a lot of patience for many people who are entertaining notions of suicide and I'll hopefully explain why in a comprehensive way throughout this discussion but but what it comes down to is that when a person gets into a suicidal state they become manipulative extremely self-centered the very nature of it in fact naturally requires a complete failure to compassionately consider others I grant you that most people who are entertaining suicidal thoughts probably believe they are compassionately considering others. But this is only because that while they are in this state, one's powers of reason are entirely compromised and completely unreliable. Notice that... uh, I am able to distinguish between what the suicidal person believes the nature of what they are doing is from the truth of what it is that they're doing for real. So while I can feel compassion and sadness for the fact that uh, they're unable to think rationally, you know, I, I recognize it's probably not their conscious intention to be manipulative and self centered. Even so, This doesn't change the reality that they are being manipulative and self-centered and that they are failing to be compassionate toward others. 
What I have very little patience for is the reality of what they are doing. For them personally and their suffering, I feel a lot of patience and concern and care. But as far as what it is they're really doing, I don't feel anything positive towards that. What does uh, true concern and care translate into? Does it translate into allowing oneself to go along with the manipulation and self-centeredness because you're afraid of what the other person might do? No, it doesn't. It does not translate into that. That is an artificial enabling type of caring. That type of uh, quote-unquote caring is not born from an interest in a person's best long-term well-being. A person who truly cares does not do anything that enables another person's sickness. True insightful care and concern involves working against that sickness. That is the takeaway point from today's show that is worth making a note of. True, insightful care and concern always involves working against the problem. It does not involve cooperating with the problem. False care enables, it works like this, doing things in a way that might appear uncaring makes you feel bad because you don't like feeling bad you're willing to do things that appear caring but that in reality allows the other person to remain unhealthy and never get better nowhere do you see this playing out as much as you do in cases of people expressing suicidal thinking the people around them might mean well but they are cooperating with the problem and thereby they are enabling the problem true insightful care by contrast is willing to do things that may appear uncaring and may be interpreted as uncaring if it means working against the problem for the other person's best long-term well-being the reason I say best long-term well-being is because in the short term this approach will definitely anger the other person it's going to make them sad it's going to frustrate them it's going to make them feel betrayed and all sorts of things but by working against the problem you are challenging things that need to be challenged you're throwing a wrench in the works so to speak and this contributes to the best possible chance they have to be healthy and better down the road for real I think the last time I told my audience that anger is the emotion I usually feel when it comes to suicide a lot of people got offended by that and tried to scold me for it now think about what I just said I expressed honestly the feeling the feeling I experience 
when the topic of suicide comes up. And the response by some was to A, get offended at what I feel, and B, tell me that I should feel something different. Do healthy people take offense at other people's feelings? No, they don't. They recognize that feelings are something we experience, not something we are doing. So as such, they're not good or bad, right or wrong. Even so, I've now explained that I do make a separation in my mind between what is happening from the suicidal person's perspective, what what they understand the nature of their own intentions and behaviors to be, contrasted with what it is they're really doing. And it's what they're really doing that I have little patience for and that makes me angry. Some have suggested that the reason I don't have a lot of patience for people expressing suicidal notions is that I've never been affected by it personally, or that I've never had any personal experiences of it affect my life. Is this true? I have experienced more suicide and tragic death in my first 35 years of life that has affected me personally, that I was directly related to than I think is true for most any average person. And I'll share that with you today. Do you remember when you were a little child? If you don't mind, take a moment to think back to yourself. When you were a little child, go back as far in your memory as you possibly can. What I want you to do is try to remember life back then for you. And specifically, how you naturally felt about certain things. Can you remember anything like that? Your observations of the world around you and how you naturally felt about certain observations you were making back then. First impressions, let's say. I'll give you an example. When I was a little boy, I found the idea of chewing tobacco tobacco absolutely repugnant my grandpa chewed tobacco and he kept an empty coffee tin remember coffee used to be sold in these big cylindrical tins I think they're all made out of cardboard today so it wouldn't work but my grandpa would reuse those cylindrical tins coffee tins as his spittoon do you know what a spittoon is? You see them in the old western movies. That's the thing people who chew tobacco spit into anytime they're indoors. Well, my grandpappy would take those empty coffee tins and put them beside the couch where he would nap. And I remember he always had baseball or NASCAR playing on the TV, but uh, he'd lay down on the couch fall right to sleep. And he would keep he would fall asleep with a big old jaw of tobacco in his in his cheek, and the coffee can sitting right there next to the couch, so he could just lean over and spit it down into the coffee can. Can I remember how I naturally felt about being around that thing? Yes, I can. I felt completely repulsed. I tried to stay as far away from that thing as I could 
and not even look in its direction, to be perfectly honest. Are there any honest and natural feelings you can tap into from your childhood like this? The reason I'm bringing all this up is because when we're very young, the things we naturally feel are pure. They very often reflect pure, honest thought. You know, what I'm trying to say is that we haven't yet had time to be influenced by the world around us about what we're quote-unquote supposed to feel or not quote-unquote supposed to feel about any given thing. We just do feel the way we feel about it, completely natural. Nobody has told us that that's good and that's bad. You know, a child has a very instinctive uh, notion of what is good and what is bad. There's been no philosophizing about it at that age, no second guessing. We just feel what we feel about it. Would it surprise you to know that later in life, I not only tried chewing tobacco, but that I enjoyed it? My cousins and I would steal it, run off into the woods and chew it. Now, why on earth would I go on to try something that I naturally found so repugnant when I was a child? It's because I got older and I began to allow the world my influences to seduce me into reevaluating, second guessing, and complicating my instinctive perspective on things. I become more hardened and corrupted. So here's this thing that in my pure, honest youth absolutely disgusted me. And later in life, I began thinking too much about it. Start getting curious about it. Not wanting to seem like a big old sissy about it. To the extent that I rejected my original, completely honest feelings about that thing. And went so far as to embrace it for a time. Even today, I don't feel the same repulsion around people who are chewing tobacco as I once did. I hardly think about it at all, to be perfectly honest. But, I haven't forgotten what my original, uncorrupted feelings were about it either. And here's the thing. I know that my young inexperienced, original, uncorrupted feelings reflect the truth of the nature of that thing much more greatly and accurately than my now older, inexperienced, more corrupted feelings reflect. My original, little boy feelings reflect the truth that chewing tobacco is gross, it's unhealthy, it's addictive, it's bad, It isn't meant to be. It dirties a person. It's not good for people. Addictions in themselves are reflective of something being wrong and unhealthy. I know that this is the true nature of chewing tobacco, but as an adult, I don't spend much time thinking about it. And it barely even catches my attention anymore. It causes me to think twice. 
Now, as long as I have you uh, locked into your past mindsets that you might have had as a young child, let me ask you, do you remember the first time you were introduced to the concept of people taking their own lives? Think about it. There was a time when this idea of people killing their own selves was not anything you had ever considered before or could even in your wildest imagination dream up as being a real thing. It reminds me of the first time that I found out that holding up your middle finger to somebody was quote unquote bad. Uh, This would have either been in the first or second grade and I don't remember what I was doing I only remember that I was holding up my middle finger. This was during lunchtime at school. We were in the cafeteria. And my friend Tiffany said, Brian, you can't do that. That's bad. I looked at her like she had two heads. What does she mean, it's bad? How can my finger, which is a part of my hand that I was born with, And that is something every single other person in this room has and was also born with. And that has all this mobility so that I can fold fingers or move fingers any way I like. How can my finger be something bad? Makes absolutely no sense at all. And I completely reject the idea that there can be any truth to this. So... I started flipping people off left and right to see what the reactions would be. And sure enough, I found out pretty quickly that society says that's bad. To this day, I think it's ridiculous. It's not even real, you know. It's only real insofar as much as all the people around you make it real like money being worth the number printed on it. That's all imaginary too, you know. In real life, that paper isn't worth any more than the paper you fold your used chewing gum up with and toss in the trash. So it's not the finger that's the problem. It's the people around you who at some point in their lives were introduced to the idea, believed it, accepted it without question who are the problem. And now, I'm the problem too, because I contribute to this totally ridiculous notion every time I take offense at seeing somebody raise their middle finger to me. Do you remember the time before you become aware that people killing their own selves was a real thing? Just the fact that on your own, it never ever occurred to you that people killing their own selves could possibly be a thing should tell you something it should tell you the same thing that my young self figured out about tobacco a long long time ago the reason it never occurred to you is because it's an abomination it's not supposed to be If you can remember back to the time when you went from living in a world where suicide 
was not even a possibility within your imagination to the moment, or let's say approximate age, when you were first introduced to it as a real thing. I wonder if you can remember how that made you feel. I can remember how it made me feel. At first, I felt the same way I did about the idea that my middle finger could be quote-unquote bad. There's just no way that can be true. There's just no way. I reject it. Then when it became clear to me that suicide really is a thing people do, my feelings went from disbelief to terrible gloom, almost a sickness in my stomach at the thought of it, and then to anger and even fear. Yeah, fear. I remember looking around at the school bus full of kids that day and trying to come to terms with the reality that some of them might one day do this to themselves at some far-off future date. What if I one day did something like that? How can you even protect yourself from such a thing when you have so much living ahead of you and no possible way to anticipate years ahead of time where your thoughts and feelings might end up and know to steer them away from there plenty of time in advance or to avoid certain situations altogether plenty of time in advance. There's a reason suicide makes me angry and that it should make you angry too. It's an abomination. It's not meant to exist. This isn't to say that I can't also feel empathy, understanding, and compassion toward the people that are in danger of doing it or who have actually followed through with it. But again, you have to understand that this empathy and compassion I'm talking, talking about is in the context of understanding the healthy reality of life. It's a reality whether you accept it as a reality or not. And it's this. Adult people are not responsible for other adult people. Also, the only people who go from unhealthy to healthy are those who make this happen for themselves. In other words, nobody who does not help themselves can be helped. So while I do feel compassion and care, I never let this override my understanding of these healthy realities that are always in play whether I acknowledge them or not. People are responsible for their own selves, and nobody who does not help themselves can be helped. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. In grade school, my closest group of friends were a threesome. Myself, Brian Lambert, and Alan Marshman, we were best friends and we were the primary arch nemesis of the school bullies. 
the group of bullies were the one extreme, you know, and we were the counterbalance to them. Brian Lambert is still alive and well. He and I are still very close friends today. I got a text message from him just today. Actually, uh, I think he was thinking about stopping by here, but uh, he hasn't done that yet. He might do it in the middle of this recording. You might remember that his wife is the one I pulled my pants down to try to moon, you know, wave my bare butt at from the boat a year or so ago. You might also remember that that little gag completely backfired on me when we come around the tree line and the shore that I thought his wife would be standing on alone was instead completely crowded with people. Alan, our mutual friend, was easily the star of our little club. Everybody admired him. I often say that uh, women wanted to be with him and most guys wanted to be him. Alan was funny. He was fast. He was athletic. He was charming. He was physically very attractive to the gals. Of course, because of these things, he was also naturally popular. He was also unusually brave. He would uh, say and do things to Larry, the leader of the bullies, that I honestly could n never have brought myself to do because I was terrified of literally getting myself beat to death. But Alan simply had no fear, I'll tell you. Alan reminded me of a little Michael J. Fox and Larry, the leader of the bullies, reminded me of Biff from Back to the Future. That's almost a perfect comparison. Alan was this little guy that by all accounts has no business getting the upper hand on the much bigger, stronger bad guy, but he just does anyway because he's the good guy. Alan used to do this thing where he would bring small American flags to school or I remember he would do this with uh, baseball cards too and he would put them inside plastic sandwich bags, bury them in the ground and then draw maps to where these things were buried as well as the dates that he was allowed to go back and try to find them and usually those dates were like a year in the future. This is something that I've done with my own daughter for fun. All these years later, 35 years later, and it's something that I totally uh, stole from Alan. When we got into high school, because Alan Lambert and I were all assigned to different classes and schedules, we drifted apart. Our feelings as friends remained strong and as intact as ever. But the time we spent with each other and that aspect of our relationship really weakened. Then came graduation. I was living in the city. Years were flying by, you know, without any of us talking to each other. One evening in the summer of 1999, I had invited all my friends from back home to join me a mile or so back in the woods on the family property for a, a weekend camp out. So we were all out there with our beer and banjos late at night when my dad shows up out of nowhere. He had walked through the dark woods and he found us by the light of our bonfire. He said to me, uh, 
your friend Brian Lambert is on the phone back at the house. This is before cell phones were a thing, so Lambert either didn't have my phone number back in the city, or he had already called there, and upon getting no answer, he decided to call my parents instead. Whatever the case, I couldn't imagine for the life of me what Lambert could possibly be calling about. When I asked, my dad told me that apparently Alan Marshmont had killed himself. Well, if you can imagine, this was like getting slapped upside the head. It, it was probably, I wouldn't say probably, it was the most shocking news I had ever received in my life up to this point. I went racing through the dark woods, the mile or so back toward the house, to call Lambert to find out what this was all about. And that night he gave me the details. Alan had been going through a divorce and not taking it very well. Let's provide some context here. In 1999, me, Alan, and Lambert would have been in our early 20s. So, Alan's already gotten married and he's already going through a divorce. From what I remember Lambert telling me that night, six months or so had passed since their separation. And Alan realized he's not taking things very well. So he goes and he checks himself into a place where they have him on a suicide watch. This is a place where they are supposed to be checking on him every 30 minutes or so. Or every hour or something like that. And he killed himself within the window of time between two different checkups. I've never gotten a straight answer on how exactly he did it, but the best I've been able to gather is that he did it by hanging. So he probably used a bedsheet or something. Over the years, I have gone to great trouble to find information on Alan, and I've never been able to turn up anything. It's almost like he never even existed. Just this week, as I was preparing this outline, I did a pretty hard search for any information about my old friend, and again, I couldn't find anything. The closest uh, I came up with was information about his older brother. I have this memory of Alan. Um, he had this naturally very dark skin. Straight hair, dark skin. And uh, we were sitting out on the playground one day after school he was waiting for his mom to pick him up I'd never seen his mom and so we were on the swing sets uh, me him and Lambert and just just telling jokes just living having a good time you know we we just loved each other's company and fed off each other well when his mom pulled up he says all right guys I gotta go and I said wait a second that's your mom he said, yes, yeah, my mom. She pulled up in a station wagon, and she was a white woman with uh, brown hair. And I said, that's your mom? He said, yeah, that's my mom. And I said, I thought you were black. <laughs> I thought he was black. I thought my, my best friend was a black guy. 
he started laughing and laughing and uh, he says no I'm not black and uh, man he teased me for for that for years but uh, when I saw his mom his mom was whiter than I am and Alan had this naturally very dark tone to his skin and in fact uh, his his older brother Steve uh, I can't remember if he was dark skinned like that or uh, I, I think he was I, I, I definitely remember that he had a sister they both had a sister and she was Asian so um, Al never talked about being adopted but I'm wondering if he if he was he did not have a father I don't know where his father was or anything like that but uh, so it's very possible that uh, it's possible that a couple of them were adopted or or that all three of them were adopted but if I had to guess about Alan's uh, racial makeup probably Indian or Middle Eastern something like that Alan Marshman was the very first experience that I can remember of having suicide involve somebody that I personally knew very well and have it affect me personally and directly like that but that would not be the last experience like this shortly after Alan's suicide my close high school friend Kenneth was killed in a terrible way while driving drunk just a couple of years before Kenneth's wreck uh, I was out with him and uh, another one of his friends we were drinking and Kenneth and the other friend got fallen down drunk they could barely walk or talk uh, this was before designated driver you know that term become a common term but I had assigned myself as the designated driver early early in the evening because I could see that these guys were getting plastered and so for that reason I only drank a couple beers and I drank them real slow we went out to an old barn that night that I knew about in the back country and we went into that barn built a fire and this is where we spent most of that uh, evening when the fellows ran out of beer we stamped out the fire started for the car and these two guys Kenneth and his friend who could barely talk or walk were begging me were practically begging me to let them drive I told them you guys are out of your minds I'm not letting you drive you guys can't even walk straight so a couple years later Kenneth who I had spent every lunch period with through high school we were able to leave high school for our lunches back then so he and I would meet up go to this place down the road to have our lunch and um, you know those that was like gold golden time right there lunchtime where we and uh, me and Kenneth would spend it together every day and then we get back right in time for school to restart but a couple years after this experience where he and I went out drinking with his other friend he got into an argument with his girlfriend one night at a bar he left the bar with her in a rage and guess what he insisted on doing that's right he had to drive she kept telling him he was in no condition to drive but he wouldn't have it it I'll tell you what makes me think of that night like two years earlier because th those two guys were insistent that I let them drive and I kept saying absolutely not absolutely not well he wouldn't have it and so as they drive, drove along 
he and the girlfriend continued to argue. And in an act of rage, Kenneth sped the car up to a really dangerous high speed on these backcountry roads just to, you know, underscore or emphasize how mad he was. And he failed to manage a curve. He hit a tree, which sent Kenneth through the front windshield, where he ended up smacking against the side of a barn. His girlfriend was in a seatbelt. She walked away a little scratched up, but that's about it. From what I've been told, Kenneth was still breathing when emergency services reached him out there in the dark next to that barn. But he died before they even got him into the ambulance. It's probably for the best because even if he had survived, it probably would not have been much of a life. Trey was a young married man with young daughters. His wife was my high school crush who I spent years daydreaming about marrying. Cindy is her name. And my family is friends with her family. Cindy and I have known each other for most of our lives. When she married Trey, I'll admit that I hated his guts just a teeny bit. But as time went on, I did get to see that he was actually a really great person. He was a great husband and a really great dad to, to his daughters. By this time, I was now living in Philadelphia. I was married to my ex-wife, Diana, and just living life. One day, I get a call. From what I understand, Trey was supporting himself and his family by delivering overflow packages that FedEx couldn't handle. Remember, this is all rural area back home. So apparently, FedEx would hire contractors for some of their overflow work. Well, this morning... Trey was up way before sunrise, heating up the engine to the fully loaded box truck that he drove for these jobs. Cindy and the kids were warm in their beds and asleep inside the house. Suddenly, Cindy woke up to a piercing scream outside, and when she ran out there, she found Trey lying in the driveway with his skull split open and the truck against a tree down at the end of their sloping driveway with the engine still running. <sighs> what it seems happened is that Trey forgot something inside the house, and so he got out, left the truck running, but not fully in gear. He didn't know it wasn't fully in gear. And he walked, got out, walked out around the front of the truck, where it started rolling knocking him over and running over his head killing him I talked to my dad about this just a couple of months after it happened while Diana and I were back home on a visit and I very clearly remember him saying it's almost impossible to comprehend I mean why did it have to run over his head it couldn't have just knocked him down and run over his leg or something? I'll never forget that, and it's something I think about a lot. The way that whole thing played out is just hard to wrap your brain around. 
Even all these years later, it's still something that is hard for me to wrap my head around. So many things had to happen just as they did, in just that order, for that result. It's unbelievably tragic, and my daughter is now about the age that his daughters were when they lost their father. Can you imagine the emotional pain, and mental pain too, that they all had to endure as a family? Cindy going to bed one night and waking up the next morning with her world entirely upside down and changed for forever. Trey was extremely close to another friend of ours named John. John was older than both Trey and me by about 30 years. I had known John and his family for most of my life. He was a friend of my dad, and his wife was a friend of my mom. And John was sort of like an uncle to me. And now that I remember it, uh, John's young son was uh, pretty close friends with my, with my brother. In the decade leading up to Trey's accident, John and Trey had developed a really close friendship. I'm talking beyond just inviting each other's families over for supper from time to time. They actually had a real close friendship. Once, when I was a teenager, I had gotten into trouble for skipping school, which was epic, by the way. I have to tell you about that sometime. And, but anyway, for today's conversation, I just it's enough to know that I skipped school on a couple of occasions. And on one time, the last time, which was epic. Uh, I got caught, and I was in all sorts of hot water over it. Now, I was not so much in trouble for the skipping school part, but rather that in order to skip school, I had fabricated a lot of complex lies and deceit in order to pull it off. And do you know actually who I was, who I made those plans with and did this with? It was Kenneth. So Kenneth and I had decided we were going to skip a whole day of school and go fishing. We did go fishing, but that wasn't all we did. We also ended up stealing somebody's bicycles and some other really crazy things that day. Things that I sort of went along with, but that I don't really remember being my idea. So it was the lion and the deceit that really shocked a bunch of people, not really the playing hooky. Anyway, in the midst of all this, John, who I looked up to sort of as an uncle, came to talk to me about it. And I will never forget what he said to me. He looked me straight in the eyes, and he said very seriously, Brian, always tell the truth. Even when it hurts, tell the truth. Especially if it hurts, tell the truth. With that in mind, let me tell you that about a year after Trey's accident, they found John hanging by a rope off the back deck of the house that he and his wife were living in. He left behind his beautiful, loving, loyal wife of probably 40 years or more, as well as his young adult son and daughter. 
That morning, he had gotten up extremely early out of bed. And as he was leaving the room, his wife asked him, What are you doing? I'm going to go out and do some work on the car, he said. So she rolled back over and went to sleep. Later, when she finally woke up, and as she was descending the stairs, she stepped over the suicide note that John had left in an envelope on the steps without seeing it. She looked out the window at the car. She couldn't see John out there doing any work. So she went out the front door in her robe, looked around a bit, then walked around to the back of the house, and there was her husband hanging off of the back deck. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the horror of being faced with a reality like this completely out of nowhere that you did not have even the slightest suspicion of just a millisecond ago? Well, this little skinny woman tried her best to raise him up to get him down all while in hysterics but she couldn't and even if she could have it wouldn't have mattered he had already been hanging there for a couple hours later from what I've been told in one of John's briefcases they found a collection of unused suicide notes dating back as far as 20 years previous to the day when he actually followed through. That means that when he looked me in the eyes and said to me, Brian, always tell the truth, even when it hurts, tell the truth. Especially if it hurts, tell the truth. He himself knew that he was living a lie. That he was hiding things from people who deserved to know those things. He knew when he gave me that advice that he had had every intention on many occasions to lie as much as necessary in order to pull off this unspeakable thing that he was harboring inside of himself. There's more to this story. It turns out that the day before John killed himself, he was in Huntington, West Virginia, spending the day with his mom and his sister. He took them out to dinner, and then he took them to see a movie together. And afterwards, as they were driving back to his car, he told his elderly mother, who was driving, pull over here to the hardware store. What do you need in there? His mom and sister asked. Oh, just nothing. Just a few little things, he says. So he went in and bought the rope that he hung himself with the very next morning. Now, how do you suppose this affected his elderly mom and his sister? Knowing and having to live with the knowing that they were the ones who drove him to the hardware store so that he could buy the rope that he would use to kill himself. Do you suppose that this was all coincidence? No, it wasn't coincidence. 
It was the precise planning of a very unhealthy person. Of course, John imagined the effect of this on his mother and sister. He knew exactly what he was doing. He did it this way on purpose. He was going for maximum effect. He wanted to leave in a way to generate a maximum amount of guilt and grief on his behalf, directed toward himself. Even knowing he wasn't going to be around to soak it in, he was taking a sick, unhealthy comfort or even pleasure in imagining people experiencing these things after he would be gone. Extremely selfish, manipulative, and self-centered. As I said before, I'm certain that John rationalized these things in his mind as being something they were not. That does not change what they really were. I feel sorrow and compassion for the man himself, but I'm angry at what he did nevertheless. It was selfish, manipulative, and self-centered, and it showed a staggering lack of compassion for his wife, his children, his mother, his sister, and his friends. It's interesting that in each of these examples I'm giving you today, not just the couple I've mentioned here, but uh, the ones we've yet to talk about, if you asked me to describe the underlying causes for each example, I would probably give you a different and distinct underlying cause for each and every one. So when wondering about the whys and reasons for suicide, there may be lots of factors it causes. For example, in the case of Alan, I would guess that emotional health was the underlying cause. In fact, I strongly suspect that he had lived with an emotional disorder for all of his life the same as I had, unaware, and the divorce that he went through precipitated the same sort of life crisis for him that I later experienced in my mid-30s. Whereas the pain for Alan was so intense that he ultimately committed suicide, I don't believe the pain that I experienced in my own case was any less intense. It was excruciating. It was the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. But I ultimately used that pain as a source of real motivation to figure out what these what were the underlying issues and eliminate them forever so that I would never again have to feel that pain. Whereas Alan's response to never again having to feel that pain was just to not be alive. What were the differences between his situation and mine? Why did his end up in tragedy and mine end up as something positive? Well, there's too many possible factors to list them all. But life experience, age, individuality are a few things that come to mind. If I had experienced my major life crisis as early in my life as Alan did, who knows how I would have chosen to handle such intense pain. Again, this is all speculation. I have no way of knowing with any certainty because he's not here and I can't ask him. In the case of John, I'd attribute his suicide to chemical imbalance combined with poor emotional health. 
I talked to him just a few months before he committed suicide. I had uh, attended a reunion of friends. There were probably a hundred people there. Under normal circumstances, John would have seen me and would have beelined over to talk to me because I was living in Philly at the time, didn't get back home too off too awful much. Um, and that was just his, his typical way of seeing me and coming over to talk to me. But at this reunion, as I was trying to make my way over to him to say hello, I noticed that he was he was real withdrawn and quiet, and it just wasn't like him at all. I eventually did get over to talk to him for a little bit, but uh, there was definitely something off, and he never did make any effort to talk to me like he usually did when I'd be visiting. The possibilities for underlying causes in each individual case of suicide fall into these categories. Physical, mental, emotional, and chemical. Of course, mental and chemical both fall under the category of physical. For example, if you have a chemical or a hormonal imbalance, that's physical in nature. It involves your physical makeup. But so is cancer, and so is a broken leg and poorer eyesight. When you can fine-tune the cause down to something like mental or chemical, then you have a much more refined and precise way to address the problem. If it's purely a chemical problem, the answer could be as simple as taking a pill. If it's emotional in nature... Hopefully you can see that a pill is not going to address the underlying problem, obviously. Then you have to take into consideration if there's not a combination of these things going on. It could be a combination of things, or it could be just one of these things. It's really impossible to apply just one explanation to every scenario for why people kill themselves. Another close friend of ours, Andrea, another friend of the family, friend with friend with uh, John and his wife, friends with uh, Trey. She knew Trey and Cindy. Um, Andrea was married to a guy named Chuck, and just a few years after John died, Andrea killed herself. I remember when I heard the news. I realized the stage of when I got that news. I realized the stage of life where these things felt like getting slapped in the face was far behind me. I don't think I felt the slightest surprise anywhere in my body and I had no clue that she was even prone to such a thing. You gotta remember that in the midst of all these suicides and deaths I had also lost my best friend of over 20 years, Jordan Selvage, in a car accident in Toledo, Ohio. You've heard me talk about Jordan a lot. So by the time I got the news of Andrea's suicide, I was already pretty hardened to this aspect of life's realities. Andrea and Chuck had gone through a divorce, and she was doing the whole play in the field thing for a year or so, as was Chuck. Anyway, she was uh, living in an apartment, and one day her young children, I say young, but they were probably young adults, both of them probably in their early 20s, got text messages from Andrea. 
saying, I love you and I'm sorry and goodbye. That's not verbatim, but you get the idea. And when they got to her, she had overdosed on a bottle of pills. They found her on her couch in her apartment. If you'd asked me to speculate about the underlying cause in this case, I would say emotional health and specifically issues involving intense shame. Again, I can't talk to Andrea and I wouldn't dare go ask her family for details about the suicide and her life leading up to it and all that stuff. So there's no way for me or anybody else to pinpoint the exact cause, the exact underlying cause for her suicide with any certainty. About a year ago, I was talking to somebody who told me they had discovered my work with the last symptom through a friend. The friend had said, you got to follow this last symptom guy's work. So the woman did. And she said at first she was skeptical and didn't care much for me, but that the longer she listened and followed along, the more she began to understand things better and to see real improvements with herself. Well, that just made my day, and I thanked her for it. I was so happy to still have her along and to finally get to talk to her. And I said, uh, what about the person who first introduced you to my work? How's she doing these days? She said, well, she got angry at something you said or did at some point, and she stopped listening and left your group. About a year later, she threw herself in front of an oncoming train and killed herself. Lordy, I can't tell you how my heart broke to hear that. I I think I used up most of my shock and surprise for one lifetime, but I probably shouldn't say that because I'm sure that life has plenty of both good and bad surprises still in store. Let me tell you that I have never seriously considered taking my own life. Yes, in times of great gloom and misery, I have briefly imagined such things. Probably every person alive has at some point or another imagined that. But I've never seriously considered it in the sense of it ever being anything that any part of me ever took seriously. But I did have an experience where I was headed that direction. Remember back at the beginning of the show, we talked about suicidal ideation. There's a reason I can speak about what that's like so intimately. It's because I intimately experienced it personally. I very vaguely remember making some reference to this way back in the first season of this show, but I can't remember the context or the extent Uh, to which I spoke about it. I was 23, and I was new to the city, and just recently married to my first ex-wife, Katrina. Looking back, there seemed to be an accumulation of things that contributed to me falling into this emotional state where I begun to have this suicidal ideation. For one, I did have borderline personality disorder at this point in my life. And it would be another 12 years before I would even begin to learn that about myself. So I was already dealing with tremendous feelings of shame and 
a lack of inherent worth, and this had been true for years. So all of that had been accumulating for a lifetime and taking its toll. Secondly, Alan Marshmint had just recently committed suicide around that time, and this had battered me. Remember, it was the very first time in my life that I had ever been close to anything like that, and Alan was a long-time dear friend that I highly admired and looked up to. Thirdly, I had gone from the relatively peaceful and familiar life in the country to a life in the city. Murders, crime, and just overall human evil was a real rarity in the country. If there was ever a murder, it was, it was a really shocking and rare thing. So now imagine going from that type of environment that you've been used to for your entire life and going to a new environment, fish out of water type of thing, where literally every single day you are hearing about people doing atrocious, terrible, evil things to each other literally every single day. I think this one thing contributed to me plunging into deep depression more than any other single thing. It was very distressing for me. I remember the most demonic news stories being told no differently than you would tell somebody the weather forecast. And the people around me in this city seemed to be going about their lives happy and without a care in the world about these things. In fact, during that time, there was a particular, particularly shouldn't even type out that word and I know I can't say it disturbing thing that happened where a married middle-aged family man with his own young daughters a guy that everybody described as just this wonderful upstanding family man of course one day went off and committed these outrageously heinous acts against some other children and it it all culminated in him killing them and killing himself and this was the shocking thing, I think, this news report that had started this entire period of depression and suicidal ideation for me. I allowed myself to continue thinking about this for far too long until it began to really affect me in real ways. It all started with this, and then everything else that I chose to focus on and think about exacerbated the effect. Fourth, uh, the lack of space and privacy. In the country, you have an excess of space and privacy. And in the city, especially when we're talking about apartment life, you have no space and no privacy. You, you can't even fart freely in your own bathroom without making your neighbors giggle. Fifth, the new obligations and stresses of being newly married and having to make it on our own. How to pay rent, how to fix the car, how to make sure there's plenty of food in the fridge, and so on and so forth. Things of that nature. Sixth, which may surprise you, the internet. Yes, it was during this time that I bought my first computer and got connected to the internet for the first time. And again, many of the things I saw on the internet deeply troubled me. 
I remember seeing images of grotesque violence of people degrading other people. Conversations where people were completely lacking in any sense of kindness or goodness. At the same time, the internet offered amazing and wonderful positive things that I had never even imagined were possible. I remember calling a friend of mine long distance, back when long distance calling was a thing, over my computer and just being completely blown away by the fact that I could do such a thing and that it would cost me not a penny more than my regular internet bill. But anyway, these six things I've just mentioned are the things that I have identified that really led me to suicidal ideation for a relatively brief period of time in my life. I'd become extremely depressed and I began to have unwelcome thoughts that were really disturbing. Thoughts such as hurting myself or of hurting my wife at that time. And you know, these were not things that I was actively choosing to think but the thoughts would hop into my mind completely unwelcome and I would push them away this this kept happening and it kept happening then one day while Katrina was at work I remember getting on the internet and instead of choosing to search for information that could potentially help me understand what was going on and fix the problem which I didn't even consider I instead began looking up videos and stories of people who had killed themselves in bizarre ways or who had killed others in bizarre ways. I remember seeing a real video of a politician, I think this was in the 70s, who had called a press conference just so he could stick a gun in his mouth in front of all the cameras and kill himself, which he did. I made the mistake of watching that video in a moment of deeply unhealthy curiosity, inexperience, and youthful stupidity, I strongly suggest that you never do. I wish I hadn't done it. Once you put something like that in your head, that's where it stays for forever. This suicidal ideation continued for probably a few months, and I, like many people, was telling myself that I I had this all under control. I'm strong. I can handle anything. But it got so bad, these crazy, scary, unwelcome thoughts, and my feeling of profound depression, that one day, I got honest with myself. I remember thinking about that day when I was a little kid, looking out at the school bus full, full of other kids, scared for them and for all of us and imagining how do you even protect yourself from such a thing that can apparently creep up on anybody and this memory of me looking out at all the kids and remembering myself as a little kid I for a moment found some modesty and I went into the other room where Katrina was lying in bed Our marriage by this point was already on the rocks. We were already having tremendous trouble by this point. But she was still somebody I could trust to want to help me if she could. And I sat on the side of the bed next to her and I said, Katrina, I need to talk to you about something. 
she sat up and she said sure what is it and I told her everything I told her the types of thoughts that I had been having that I, I thought I was um, experiencing some deep depression I had never been depressed before that I knew of not like this anyway and it was something new for me and worrisome I'll tell you what I was embarrassed about the whole thing I was embarrassed I was worried about what she was going to think of me what anybody was going to think of me I was worried of being seen as crazy but I I, that wasn't the most important thing to me I talked to her about it she asked questions and I answered them honestly this one thing really helped tremendously just not dealing with it in secret anymore talking to somebody about it completely honestly and openly it was a tremendous help that day was a turning point from that day forward I started to feel better and the dangerous unwelcome thoughts began to subside of course now that Katrina knew what was going on inside of me she was treating me with a lot of understanding and patience and kindness asking me how I was feeling regularly regularly, and those sorts of things and that surely helped pull me out of that scary period as well this makes me think back to John and his briefcase full of suicide letters dating back 20 years or more one thing I know for sure is that literally nobody not his wife not his kids nobody had any inkling of a notion that he was dealing with these sorts of thoughts apparently in all of his life John never found it within himself to talk to somebody else or to seek out help or understanding apparently all the way up to the end over a period of more than two decades this man clung to the idea that he was in total control that he could do this himself that he didn't need anybody else that seeking help was weak worrying about what other people would think of him and so forth in other words John was a very immodest man he did not accept that he had limitations or what those limitations were and he wasn't content to work within the confines of those limits this man who prided himself on his strong notions of right and wrong could not even see that every choice he was making was a complete betrayal of his notions of right and wrong I have no doubt that he had all sorts of explanations in mind for why his particular circumstances didn't apply and were an exception but that's only because he wasn't thinking straight at all when you're closed up like that and have nobody to bounce your way of thinking off of of course you can justify anything you can explain anything and it all makes perfect sense to you you're not allowing any outside perspectives or arguments so there's no system whatsoever of checks and balances the worst thing any of us as individuals can do in any situation is to clam up 
and think we can figure it out for ourselves and handle every single thing in private. Imagine if John had not kept all these things secret inside of himself and if he had relented and demonstrated enough modesty and humility to talk to his wife openly and honestly about what it was he was dealing with. The very first year he began to experience these things. Imagine that. He might have experienced the same sort of instant relief that I did and have gone on to never have to deal with those same unwelcome thoughts again. It's totally possible. We'll never know. But one thing we can say for sure is that it most certainly could not have had a worse outcome than the way he handled it. You see, he had absolutely nothing to lose by choosing to let people in to try to help him. But even having absolutely nothing to lose, he apparently couldn't muster up enough modesty and humility to do it. I called my mentor, Dave Selvage, after John killed himself. Dave, of course, knew John well. And I said, what do you think about all this? And Dave said he wasn't in his right mind. The very act of one killing himself or herself is an act of somebody unable to think clearly and rationally. I agree with Dave. No matter what the underlying cause is, be it physical, mental, emotional, or chemical, the effect in the end is the same. An inability to think clearly and rationally. In all these cases, the person surely believes they have thought it all through perfectly, rationally, and clearly, but it only seems that way to them because their very thinking ability itself is completely compromised and completely unreliable. That's why it's so important to get outside help. I remember seeing a documentary once about one of the only people ever to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco in an attempt to commit suicide and ultimately survive. He was a young guy when he did it. He spent weeks thinking about it, and the day he got to the bridge, he walked the bridge a handful of times, thinking it over and over and over. When the time came, and he leapt over the railing, he says that as soon as his hand left the railing, his mind became totally clear, and he could see that every single thing he had rationalized leading up to this was complete and utter nonsense. In other words, in that split moment, he went from all of these thoughts seeming to make perfect sense to suddenly seeing that they didn't make a single lick of sense at all. But by then it was too late. He straightened out his body in an attempt to hit the water as clean as possible, but he still ended up breaking both of his legs, breaking ribs, suffering a concussion, and all sorts of just terrible things. There just happened to be a boat nearby, 
that came by and got him out of the water when he floated back up to the surface. That man was very, very happy to still be alive to be interviewed years later. I've seen it said that the absolute worst time to commit suicide is when you most feel like committing suicide. Why do you reckon that is? It's because your thinking is more unreliable at that moment than at literally any other moment. I often think about this kid who happened to survive the jump from the Golden Gate Bridge, and I can't help but assume that it's the exact same last thought almost everybody has after they've already irreversibly committed to their own demise. That is a terribly sad thing to think about. How should you deal with people who use threats of suicide, whether they're serious or not about it, and whether or not they are consciously aware of their underlying motivations or not, as a form of manipulation? Well, we've already talked about it. To cooperate with such a thing may allow you to avoid hurting the person's feelings in the short term, and it may allow you to go to bed that night not feeling bad. But I would just like you to ask yourself how you can possibly be content knowing that you are enabling this person's misery and contributing to their ongoing suicidal ideations. Remember, true care fights against these things. It doesn't cooperate with them. True care and concern is perfectly willing to appear cold and uncaring in the short term in order to handle a situation in a way that's best for a suffering person in the long term. Very early on in my work with The Last Symptom, people would come into my group and want to use the group to talk about suicide, but not in an honest, healthy, or constructive way. Their intentions were not to get real help in the interest of really doing whatever was necessary to get healthy. Rather, their true purpose was the unhealthy pleasure of fantasy, of suicidal ideation, of unhealthy pity, and the same purpose that John had in mind when he purposely used his own elderly mother and sister to help him go and buy the rope that he was going to use to kill himself, that is, to force a sense of responsibility and concern for himself and his own well-being upon other people. To throw this weight upon other people and make it their problem while not being truly willing to help himself. Often I talk to partners who say that their husbands or girlfriends threaten to kill themselves all the time. The partner feels completely imprisoned in these situations because he or she is terrified that if he or she leaves the, the person, or if he or she sets boundaries or anything like this, that the other person will actually go off and kill himself or herself. First of all, 
Only a person who is tremendously unhealthy, emotionally speaking, would ever allow himself or herself to get swindled into this sort of Mexican standoff to begin with. Secondly, only a person who is tremendously unhealthy would remain in a Mexican standoff like this while not realizing how they are enabling the other person to never take responsibility for himself or herself and therefore never have an opportunity to get better. Do you know what happens the instant, the instant somebody suggests that I am in any way responsible for anything they think, feel, or do? If it's a person in my personal life, they're out immediately. They're out. If it's somebody through my work, I immediately block that person and they're gone. Back when the last symptom group used to be on Facebook, the instant somebody came into my group and tried to force responsibility for their well-being up on me, I instantly blocked that person for life. What does somebody trying to force responsibility for their well-being on me against my will look like? It looks like this. Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm tired of living. Instant block for life, and instantly reported to platform moderators. How about somebody private messaging me and saying something like, Hi, I feel like I can't go on. Instant block for life, and instantly reported when somebody comes to you and says they want to kill themselves, what is the correct thing for you to do? The, the only correct thing for you to do is to report the situation to a professional crisis hotline. So if this is the correct thing for you to do, and the suicidal person knows that this is the correct thing for you to do, and that this is the situation they are putting you into, and it's likely what you're now going to have to do why did the suicidal person not just get on the phone with the crisis hotline themselves in the first place you know the answer why it's because they want to unload the responsibility for their well-being onto you they want to make it your problem. And what are you doing when you allow this? You're cooperating with the problem rather than fighting against the problem. Because what is the real problem? The real problem is that the person is not accepting responsibility for himself or herself. And the person is not helping himself or herself. Remember that a person who does not help himself or herself cannot be helped. Friends, that's the re reality of the situation. It doesn't matter if you accept that reality or not. It's still the reality. So when you allow this sort of manipulation, what are you enabling? You're enabling a person not helping himself or herself. They are refusing to accept responsibility for a thing that only they are responsible for, and they are manipulating you 
into taking responsibility for it. Can people who have other people doing things for them get better when the necessary ingredient to the whole thing is that they do it for themselves? The answer is no. Now, you may think that this shows a lack of empathy on my part, or maybe you think that after I just got done talking about how John should have shown modesty and opened up and talked to somebody, that I'm contradicting myself. But what you don't understand is a person's real motivation for reaching out to me that way in the first place and what their intentions are, whether they know it or not. Their real intentions are manipulation for their own unhealthy purposes. Not their, their intentions are not to get better. John should have talked openly and honestly with his wife first. She deserved that information, and she can't, she can't access it without him sharing it with her, right? Whatever I'm thinking, you know, literally, I can, anything can be going on inside of me. And how are you to know what, what's going on inside of me unless I tell you? Well, John's wife was his partner in life. She deserved that information. It was important information. It had affected them both. It affected the whole family. So John should have talked openly and honestly with his wife because she deserved that information. And if after doing that, that wasn't enough, he should have reached out for professional help. And if that wasn't enough, he should have continued reaching out to professionals and various services This is his life we're talking about. A person who is serious about getting help opens up honestly and humbly to those who deserve to know what's going on inside of them that affects them and then continues to help himself or herself by taking advantage of the multitude of totally free resources set up and available for exactly these sorts of specific situations provided by trained professionals. What takes more time and effort? Typing suicide hotlines into a search engine and then making a call? Or introducing yourself to complete strangers on an internet group and telling them that you want to kill yourself? Which one is a greater demonstration of somebody wanting help for real. Which is easier and demonstrates a real desire for help? Putting others into a situation and making that call for you? Or you just making the call yourself? A person who is serious about getting help first helps himself or herself. In fact, it's the only way it works at all. No matter how much you wish you could do these things for them, you can't. And trying only enables and cooperates with the underlying illness. The reason I have very little patience for people who claim to be suicidal or who really are is because whether or not they can think straight, the real manifestations of what they're dealing with is manipulation, feigning helplessness, trying to get people to do things for them 
that only matters if they do it for themselves. And all of this is built upon extremely selfish, self-centered, unhealthy, self-serving thinking and behaviors. Those of you who are thinking that all this means I don't care, you are not listening. I do care. And everything I just said is still true. So the first time a husband threatens to kill himself if a wife goes through with a divorce, and she allows this to influence her into changing her mind, she's just fed the monster. She's now enabled this type of dangerous and unhealthy thinking and manipulation and has cooperated with it. Suicide is no joke. It's one of the most serious things I can imagine. For people to use their own lives, their own lives as a manipulation tool or something to garner pity or as an excuse to avoid accepting responsibility is a very offensive thing to me. At the same time, I recognize that the manipulation and these other underlying things are being done unconsciously, so I don't judge such people harshly. I don't judge them as people harshly. I distinguish between what they are doing and who they are. What does the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority tell us? It tells us the truth that you don't have any responsibility or authority over other adult human beings. They're going to do what they're going to do. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. There never has been anything you could do about it. And there never will be anything you can do about it. If somebody wants to kill himself or herself, he or she will. As the example of Alan clearly demonstrates, he was in an institution where they were checking up on him all the time. Doesn't matter. He wanted to do it. He found a way to do it. John and Andrea's examples clearly demonstrate the same. If somebody wants to kill himself or herself, he or she will. And who's responsible for it? Only they are responsible for that. We can be pained and we can try to help as long as that help does not involve unhealthy elements of enabling or of cooperating with what is keeping them unhealthy or sick. So basically we can help in ways that are the complete opposite of what most people think is help. That's how you can help, by doing almost the exact opposite of what everybody out there thinks is help. But the whole responsibility of the thing lies on the individual, not on you. And the only part of anything that makes any difference whatsoever is whether they are helping themselves first. They have to be helping themselves first. They have to be proactively uh, taking an interest in that and taking action on that for themselves first. It, you know, it's no different than if you make up your mind to leave your house tomorrow and never come back. If your mind's made up, who can stop you? Nobody. That's who. 
And if you do leave your house tomorrow and you never come back, whose responsibility is it that you did that? Well, it's certainly not my responsibility. Even if I call you up and say, hey, do this thing, the decision whether to do it or not is still entirely up to you. If you do it, your doing it is your responsibility, whether I said for you to do it or not. Because no matter what I said, the choice was still entirely in your hands. Do you know that uh, when I was going through my divorce with my ex-wife Diana, this is in Philadelphia, I pulled this on her one night in a last-ditch effort, panic, to prevent her from divorcing me. Nobody could find where I was, and she was calling and calling my phone, and Finally, I answered, and I said something completely stupid, like, I'm thinking about ending it all if this divorce goes ahead. Remember, at no time during this borderline personality disorder crisis did I ever once seriously consider physically hurting myself. So what I was clearly doing was I was trying to manipulate her, to imprison her into the situation where I would force the responsibility for the outcome of my well-being, which, remember, only I'm responsible for, upon her. Do you know what she said? She said, well, I would hate for you to do something like that. But I have no control over you or your personal decisions. And that was the end of that. She completely pulled the rug out from under this manipulation, and in doing so, she exposed the hard truth that she's not responsible for what anybody else feels, thinks, or does, except when it is she herself doing the feeling, thinking, and doing Do you think I ever again tried that little stunt of threatening to hurt myself to manipulate her or anybody else? I absolutely did not. I learned real quick that if I wasn't serious about hurting myself, how pointless that was. Either I was going to hurt myself and that was entirely on me, or I didn't really want to hurt myself. I hope everybody out there who's dealing with somebody with suicidal thinking now understands the truly caring way to deal with such ones. And I hope that those of you who are yourselves dealing with suicidal thinking now have the courage to accept the responsibility that only belongs to you to proactively take the steering wheel and begin to help yourselves by being in charge of your own care by reaching out to the correct professional organizations to get that care to humble yourselves show modesty if the first people you talk to aren't enough talk to more people if they're not enough talk to more people this is your life we're talking about see doctors Examine all the different possibilities that it, that where this could be originating from. Don't give up until you have 
zeroed in on the true underlying causes of what it is you're dealing with this these suicidal thoughts one common concern by many when struggling with suicidal feelings is their reputations they worry about there being some sort of record out there linking them to these struggles for forever well don't come to me talking that way because I don't have any patience or sympathy for that sort of thinking at all screw your reputation if your reputation is that you have never struggled with any physical, mental, emotional or chemical issue your reputation is a total lie so how much value does your reputation have? You're listening right now to a person who for the past four years has openly and freely shared more humiliating details of my personal crisis and recovery than maybe anybody else you listen to with thousands upon thousands of total strangers. My reputation is actually harmonious with the truth of who I am for the first time in my life wouldn't you like that too reputations built upon total fabrications and lies and denial are utterly worthless so don't come to me with that thinking it carries any weight I don't I don't care (laughs) I don't care if you're worried about your reputation you need to care less about your reputation you need to care more about your life and your emotional health or your mental health or your physical health or whatever there's no honor whatsoever in keeping your struggles a secret and pretending they don't exist there's no honor whatsoever in keeping your struggles a secret and pretending they don't exist that's not honorable that's no credit to you to be walking around everybody thinking you're Uh, the healthiest person in the entire universe when in reality you're not on the other hand there is tremendous honor in accepting our limitations and faults and struggles humbling ourselves enough to address them honestly with help from others people value that sort of grit vulnerability honesty modesty humanity